All right, so um, here's the deal. Uh, we are back in the book of Matthew. If this is your very first time here, um, we were, for a while, studying the book of Matthew for a good, like, two years or so. And so uh, we've had little, you know, little commercials, but this past fall, we took, like, a big commercial. And so we studied through the book of Philippians, and so there's been about 53, I don't know, something like that, sermons uh, so far in the book of Matthew. And so we're, we're picking back up. We, we finished our little uh, hiatus, and we're finally back into the book of Matthew today with the hopes of finishing it sometime, in the <coughs> maybe this year. So, um, I know, awesome. And then what are we going to do? So, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 today. That's where we're going to start, Matthew 18, 21. And so, just to give you an idea of, of kind of the big ideas of what's going on, so we can all get, be on the same page, and we'll drill down and feel like we're all on the same page, uh, in case you've never been here before. So... Matthew, uh, a couple of things you saw here, one of the things that we're calling this, this entire study through the book of Matthew, we're calling it Messiah. And so the, the main, one of the main themes that Matthew is trying to do as he writes this entire book is to help people see that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, the guy that was talked about in the Old Testament over and over and over, that guy, um, all those prophecies, all those things about him, that person is actually Jesus. So we know that the book of Matthew is primarily written to... Okay, Jews. I, we're gonna still. I did that. I think a couple weeks ago. There was dead silence, crickets. So we're gonna. I'm gonna keep doing it till we can all finally get it. But one of the things that that's going on is Matthew is writing this book to people who are Jewish, showing that the person that's being talked about in the Old Testament is Jesus. And so now, um, since the whole thing's called Messiah, one of the things that Jesus has been doing as he's been going along is doing different kinds of teaching, giving us parameters, helping us understand the way we're supposed to interact with people, etc., etc. And so we've pulled into chapter 18, 1, and I don't know if you were here, but chapter 18, verse 1 through verse 20, you know, like six months ago, Jack preached two sermons in a row on uh, chapter 18, verses 1 and 20. And verses 18, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 1, all the way until the end of 20, uh, that particular set, set of chapters we're calling kingdom community. In other words, um, if you're going to be in the kingdom, if you're going to be in the community of believers, then there's certain things as you're part of that kingdom, there's certain things that we're supposed to know. There's interactions with one another that are kind of parameters for our relationships. The way that we're supposed to interact with each other, the way that we're supposed to talk to each other, the way that we're supposed to forgive each other, the way that we're supposed to be married, the way it's, all, it's got all kinds of parameters inside this kingdom community, which is where we're finally pulling in. And this particular day, we're going to be looking at forgiveness today. So just to, rem to remind you, uh, because context is always key for us as we're going through, uh, one of the last things that Jack showed us in eight, chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17, is if somebody it has sinned against you, it says in verse 15, someone sinned against you, then the thing you should do is go tell them, hey, uh, this is what you've done, and the reason why you're going to tell them is not because you're wanting to take their face and grind them and make them feel terrible, but instead, you're wanting them to respond back with, you're right, May God forgive me. You want them to not just be reconciled to you, but even more importantly, reconciled to God. That's the most important relationship there is, is their relationship with God. So you're going with a, a tender heart towards them, trying to lead them to Christ. Um, if that doesn't work, it says in verse 16, then get two people, trusted people, not crazy gossipers, but two people that are trusted. Go to them, and y'all do the same thing. You're trying to get them reconciled to God. If that doesn't work, you go to the church, church verse 17, etc. So we're seeing these are some of the, the ways relationships are supposed to happen inside the church. Now, <clears throat> we're going in here to verse 21, and Jesus is going to give us some more um, rules of 
the way that we're supposed to interact with people inside this kingdom community. So this immediately applies in your community groups. This immediately applies in your, your Christian group on campus. This immediately applies in whatever context you find yourself in, in, a, in a circle of Christians, uh, in whatever that way that is, whether it's um, working with students at high schools or uh, maybe you have a, a group that you do prayer, uh, uh, Bible study and prayer at your, at your office or, or whatever. It, hopefully you have a community group if you're not plugged in one here already at, at Remedy, which you can obviously be in. Um, there's all kinds of contexts where there's a group of people and there's, there's ways that you're supposed to interact and, and ways that you're supposed to reflect out what Christ has done in your life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here. So that's, that's where we are, just so we can kind of all be on the same page. So what I'm going to do is pray. We're going to read the text together, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to preach hopefully much shorter than I preach first service. So let's pray and um, ask the Lord to come now. God, we thank you for this time where we can look into your word and Lord, this task, this, this topic, this uh, idea of forgiveness that we're supposed to extend to others, it's difficult, Lord. There's, there's lots of people, uh, if we drill down a little bit past the, the surface, that it's, it, they find it very difficult to forgive people that have sinned against them. And so I'm asking for a special measure of grace here, Lord. I want to be as pastoral as possible where I can be seen as loving and caring because I want to be actually loving and caring, not just uh, these are what the things that God says, but instead, Lord, come alongside them and feel the pain and be empathetic and be sympathetic with them and point them to Scripture. And so I ask for a special measure of the Holy Spirit this morning that I can, I can speak with, with clarity and truth, but also in, in deep love. We need you to come now um, and, and not just show us our deep need to forgive other people, as you're going to tell us in the text, but, but more than that, have a, a, a huge grand view of the forgiveness that you have given to us in Christ. <laughs> so God, these things are huge that I'm asking, and there's no way that I can do it. I throw myself at, at your feet and at your mercy and ask for you to come now and, and superintend these next few moments as we look into your scriptures. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read the text so we're all kind of all on the same page, if you're unfamiliar, so we can all know what's going on here. Um, more than likely, what's going on is there's not a whole lot of people around. You can look at 18.1 and see that Peter and the disciples were around Jesus, and it says at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, so more than likely as that particular text uh, 1 through 20 was being told to us that it was just Peter and the disciples around Jesus and they were talking. And we can see here at verse 15, at 21, I'm sorry, that we're going to look at today, that this is just a conversation between Jesus and Peter. I think it's helpful as we're looking at the interactions and the teachings that Jesus has given to know who's there. Are vast crowds there or is it just Peter or is it just Chris? Like who is it? And it says in 21, then Peter came up and said, and we know from verse 1 that it was the disciples and then Peter comes up. So we think, I think, that this set of verses we're looking at is a conversation just between Peter and Jesus. I think the disciples are probably near listening. We don't know that for sure, but we know Peter and Jesus, and that's, that's where we are, 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts 
with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, uh, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him and beginning to choke him, he said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay all the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all the debt. So also my heavenly father will do with every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I need to uh, begin this sermon with a disclaimer. Um, I feel like I need to do that a lot lately. Um, As we read this, we can see what the task is ahead of us. There's no, like, hidden uh, message here. We are to be forgivers of other people. So let me just go ahead and put this out as my disclaimer. Um, I have never really, tragically, been sinned against. I've been sinned against, but never to the degree that more than likely some of you have been sinned against by other people. And so, in a lot of ways, I'm the worst person to be preaching this sermon. Because I, I have difficulty um, empathizing completely because I've never been sinned against to the degree that you have. But on the other hand, maybe I'm the best person to be preaching this sermon because I can be as objective as I need to be instead of just saying, um, oh, I understand, you know what, you get an exception. I, all I have is just to say, here's the word of God, this is what he says. And so, I know it's a huge task, but this is what he's saying. So let me, let me put out that disclaimer. Now, all along the way, I'm, I'm going to, um, as best as I can, say I understand completely that you've been sinned against terribly. And the idea of forgiving someone of the sin that's been, that's been done against you, extending that back to them, is very, very difficult. I understand that. So, let me just stop and say... Who is this sermon for? Who is this for? I think it's for um, those who have been abused. Probably or maybe a, a continual pattern against in your life. There's been abuse against you. And so you hear this. This sermon is for you to look back at the abuser and be able to forgive them in the way that Christ has forgiven you. I'm not going to pretend that that's easy. I, I know it's tremendously difficult. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that as we go through. And hopefully, pastorally, I can try to lead you as, you know, from one way speaking as I can. Um, another person that this is from, that this is for, this sermon is for, this is for the spouse that has enormous difficulty forgiving their husband or wife because of the life that this husband or wife has lived against them. They've sinned against them so many times. This spouse needs to hear this. You 
you must, if you're in Christ, extend forgiveness to them. As much as they've talked to you in ways that are just despicable, as much as they've treated you in ways that aren't kind and not Christ-like, um, you are to forgive them. This is also to the adult who still looks back at their childhood and at their parents specifically with a lot of disdain because they still can't believe what their parents allowed or what their parents did or etc. And you're still having trouble forgiving them for what they did. I want to pastorally try to walk you through this text and help you see that forgiveness is what God is calling you towards. There's a, there's a pastor in Philadelphia, Dr. Eric Mason. He says this, folk is messy. And I just think that's exactly right. I mean, folk is messy. If we're going to, and we all don't have a choice, live in everyday life with other people, be roommates with sinners, be married to sinners, have interactions and have parents that are sinners, or um, have children that are sinners, we need to realize if we're going to live in that life, which we don't have a choice, folk is messy. And so it's not easy at all to be a sinner with other sinners and be sinned against but, and hear these things. And so pastorally, I want to acknowledge that folk is messy, and I want to get down in here with you and try to be as pastoral as I can, but also still proclaim these these set of scriptures with truth and the authority of the scriptures that we are all being called to what God is asking us to do. So um, let's look at verse 21. And there's, there's, there's some notes in regard to forgiveness that I want you to see. Some notes in regard to forgiveness that I want you to see. Last thing, and this is just maybe the obvious thing. Uh, this is a parable, okay? This is just a parable. This isn't real life history. Jesus is having an interaction with Peter, and for Peter to understand what's supposed to happen, G- Peter's gonna t- or Jesus is going to tell Peter a, a story. This is not real life. So whenever you're studying a parable, you don't try to figure out tons of historical things. You don't try to figure out um, all the details and say, well, this man should have done this. Jesus gets to decide what the man does, okay? The whole point of a parable, th- if you want to understand a parable, 99% of the time, go to the last verse of the parable, and there's the point of the parable. So don't get bogged down in the history that's being told in the story. It's not real. Go to the last verse, which is here. You can go to verse 35. You got the whole point, and you can just write down verse 35, and you're excused, like you're done. You don't even have to listen anymore. So I'm just kidding. Don't actually do that. But Because um, I've got six things, and there's only one in verse five, or 35. So um, uh, there's some things I want us to think about. I think some, some little markers in regard to forgiveness on the way to verse 35. But it's a parable. Okay, the point of a parable is the last verse, usually all the time. Verse 21. Um, Remember, we just talked about holding people accountable and if we've been sinned against and if we uh, need to ask them to be reconciled. And so here we are at verse 21. So Peter hears all that and he comes up to Jesus and he says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, rabbinic tradition uh, in this time showed that if, if you were sinned against three particular times, on the fourth time, you did not have to extend forgiveness anymore. So Peter, I mean, you can just imagine Peter walking up. He's like, you know, Jesus, I was thinking. Um, I, I know he's going to like this. So if someone sins against me, can I extend forgiveness seven times and that's good? You know, I took three, I doubled it, 
and I added one. I got the Jesus number, God number seven. Is that good for you? And so you can just imagine Peter kind of thinking, I am quite big hearted here. No doubt Jesus is going to be quite impressed with me. I'm going to say seven times, not just three. And so it's just so funny. You can, you can see here, as many as seven times, and Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. You can just see Jesus drops Mike, walks off stage, and Peter's just like, what? If you're not really good with math, 70 times seven is 490. And so Peter's just automatically running through, I, I imagine, he's like, here, the seven times 490, that's a lot of times. That's, that's a whole lot of times. How am I supposed to? The point is, and, and just so you don't get bogged down literally in 490, all you type A's are like, I'm keeping a tally. Where's my book? You've got 490 strikes, buddy. 489, I'm telling you, we're done. Like, that's not, that's not what, Peter, what Jesus is trying to say. And, and if you're like me, I mean, I'm going to forget after three. Like, I'm not counting. So, but Jesus is not trying to say, um, 490 literal times of forgiveness, 491, you can, you can kick them out of your life. That's not at all what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is this. Um, there is no end to the number of times of which you must forgive people. He's, he's using 70 times 7 to basically say there is no end. There must be over and over and over and over and over and over and over a posture of forgiveness from you to other people. Now, before we beat Peter up too much, Let's, let's take one little step back. Charles Spurgeon, as he's reading this, he makes this one little comment. And I think this was a good indictment, at least on my own heart, maybe not yours, but at least on my sinful heart, this is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, how many of us have grace enough even for sevenfold forgiveness? How many of us have even been willing to forgive someone seven times? We, what about Peter? Come on, Peter, get your math right. Like, how many of us are willing to forgive seven times? Sin against us, and we would do it. So, Let's not beat Peter up too much, even though it's perfectly, you know, easy to do it. Um, now, the, the, the point is, when Jesus says 70 times 7, is that we are to forgive basically without end. Without end. Here's, here's the first note on forgiveness I want you to write down. Um, it'll be on the screen. It says, we are to never stop forgiving people that sin against us. We are to never stop uh, forgiving people that sin against us. This is how Calvin, this is what he says. When Calvin's looking at us, he goes, Never become wearied in extending forgiveness. Never become wearied in extending forgiveness. Now, I feel I must say this. Um, as, a, as a Christian, I must say, if we're looking at, verse, looking at this verse 22, and we're looking at this verse 1, and we're saying, we're to never stop forgiving people that sin against us? How is that possible? I mean, I don't, I don't have that in me. And you're right. I think, this is, unless you are in Christ, unless you have been forgiven by Jesus of all of your sin and asked for forgiveness and been transferred into the kingdom of the Son, and now you are um, fighting the good fight of faith and you are a believer now, you will never ever be able to live out this, this, point, this first point. You don't have the ability to continually extend forgiveness to people unless you're in Christ. You, you might be able to do it some, maybe even more than others. Maybe you just have a really long fuse. But eventually, unless you're in Christ, you're not going to fulfill what, what's being asked of you here. That you are to extend forgiveness without end. You'll never do that unless you're in Christ. You may do it for a while, longer than some people. But you won't do it without end. You'll eventually break. And so you must be, that's kind of my caveat, I'm, you have to say, you must be in Christ in order to do this. We're going to talk about that in a little bit if you're not in Christ, but let's, let's keep moving. So here, 
uh, after this interaction between Peter and Jesus, how many times? At least seven. How about me, Jesus? No, 490, but really, I mean, as many as possible. And so after that, Jesus wants to say, all right, Peter, um, story time. Let me, let me tell you a little story, and I want to illustrate what I'm trying to tell you here. And we're going to look at these next uh, 23 through 35. We're going to look at these verses and, and see the story, this parable that Jesus tells, trying to help him, Peter understand forgiveness. In verse 23, it says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. Now, just a reminder, but one of the key themes, just like Messiah, another one of the key themes all the way through the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. If you remember in um, right whenever Jesus started his public ministry, he got baptized and he began that three-year public ministry before he went to the cross. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says that Jesus went out telling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And at 4.23, it says that he went out and proclaimed the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom is a reoccurring theme over and over throughout the book of Matthew. So here, the kingdom is still reoccurring. He's trying to help people see this is what it's like to be in kingdom life. If you're going to be a, a part of this community, this kingdom community, this is what it means. We're supposed to be forgiven. So he says, I, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and I think that he's talking about the present kingdom life, not the not the not yet, but the already, because I, I don't think in the not yet, the, the, the final kingdom, that we're going to need to forgive other people because we're not going to be sinned against. So this is, this is rules against here now. I mean, rules for us here now, the present kingdom. He tells us a story based on the little Q&A action of Jesus and Peter in verses 21, through 23, or 21 and 22. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So we have a king. There's bunches of servants, and all these servants owe him money. And he, he's like, you know what? It's time to settle accounts. It's time to get some of this money paid back to me. I want to I settle these accounts. It's just a story. It's just a parable, okay? Um, verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him, one person was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, some of y'all might have your ESV study Bibles, and it's going to give you how much this is. Let me, for those of us that don't have that with us, because who wants to carry that big, huge, heavy, like, doorstopper? No one. So um, maybe you want to, but I, it's hard to for me to carry. Anyway, why did I do that? So verse, uh, verse 24, it says 10,000 talents. One talent, if we kind of bring it forth in today's monetary system, one talent is somewhere near six million dollars. And it says that this guy owed 10,000 talents. Again, if we're not good at math, I had to write it down. Six billion dollars. We can't say that like, like uh, six billion. Like we feel like we need to say it like not or evil. But he owes him six billion dollars. Six billion dollars. One person owes a guy six billion dollars. What Jesus is trying to do here, just so we all can be clear of what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is trying to pick a figure. Some of y'all are like, who is Dr. Evil? Anyway, um, so here's, here's, the, uh, here's what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to list a monetary value that we think is actually possible to pay back. I know today that we deal in, you know, when we think about national debt, we owe like $100 trillion to everybody. Like we, we, can, we think, oh, $6 billion, you know, that's what we spend in a day and a half in America. So, like, I, I don't want you to think, um, well, that just seems like that's actually possible. Back then, when people actually paid what they owed, um, it wasn't possible. So whenever he says $6 billion, everybody that's hearing this is literally hearing, that is impossible. Like, no one could ever owe that, or at least if they did, no one could ever, 
in a billion lifetimes pay back six billion dollars. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that this is completely impossible to pay off. It's overwhelming, it's crushing, it's incalculable debt. Incalculable, crushing, overwhelming debt. Now, we know the spiritual point that Jesus is trying to make. He's equating monetary debt with our sin. And he's trying to help you see your sin against God is not ever something that could be paid back. It's six billion. It's, if we need it, like it's 600 gazillion million trillion billion dollars. Like it never can be paid back. It's overwhelming, crushing, incalculable debt. Your sin is incalculable when it comes against a holy God. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He doesn't want us to think that it's actually possible to be paid back. Um, so here's point number two. Here's point number two. In, in regard to forgiveness, one of the points that Jesus is wanting to us to understand, when we're going to start forgiving other people, something you have to understand about yourself is the debt God canceled, and this is only if you're a Christian. It's only if you're a Christian. Or if you are going to be a Christian, this can be true of you. The debt that God canceled for you, Christian, was and is greater than you ever could repay. If you're not in Christ, the debt of your sin right now is greater than you can ever repay. Therefore, Christ can completely cancel it. You can never, ever pay it off. Ever. However, the master absolutely can cancel it with a word. Forgiven. Because he's already canceled it by his son dying for us on the cross. We're going to get to the gospel, I promise. I, I, should, I want to launch into it now, but I've got to have some restraint because I've got a little plan here that I'm going to stick to. But what I want to do here is uh, take a little, a, a little brief excursus, a little, a little a movement over to another text where I want you to see something. There's, this is um, Luke chapter 7, and I want us to drop down in this little particular story because I want us to understand whenever we've been forgiven so much debt we need to know what our proper response is to being forgiven so much debt. And so this is a perfect story for that. Basically what's going on here, we're going to drop down in Luke 7. Um, this won't be on the screen, but we're going to pick up in verse 30, 41. But here's what's going on in Luke 7. There's a woman who has been forgiven by God, and she hears, Jesus is over at Simon's house tonight. And so I've been forgiven by, God, by Jesus. I am so amazed by this forgiveness. I realize that it's incalculable crushing debt the sin debt and i hear that the man who is the only man who is who's capable of forgiving that debt who can be god no one else can forgive that god's over jesus is over at simon's house i've got to go to simon's house and so she goes there uninvited she busts into the door she sees jesus she runs over it's i'm sure a bit of a scene she, she's got really long hair she takes her long hair she's just rubbing it all over jesus's feet cleaning jesus's feet she's crying so much she's producing enough water to take her hair with enough water clean jesus's feet and she's just that's what that's the scene that's what's going on and so as he's doing that as she's doing that jesus is there eating you know with this guy simon simon's not a believer he's a pharisee he sees this woman doing this and he's just thinking to himself all he's doing is thinking to himself mm, this lady's we know who this is. She's, you know, a woman of the city. We know who she is. I can't believe Jesus is letting her touch his feet. He's now unclean. I can't believe this is going on. This woman is gross. How can this happen? And Jesus knows all this is going on. And so he wants to teach Simon something about this woman. He wants Simon to understand what's going on in this woman's heart. 
And so we launch into, or we pick it up right here in verse 41. This is what Jesus looks at this guy, Simon, who's having these negative thoughts, just thoughts about Jesus. And if you look at 40, it says, and Jesus answered say it, saying to him. I think that's hilarious because Simon didn't say anything. He's just thinking it, and Jesus answered him. Anyway, verse 41, Jesus tells this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 days wages, denarii. The other owed 50 days wages, or denarii. Um, when neither one of them can pay, he canceled them both. Which one of them will love him more? So one owes 500, one owes 50. I'm going to cancel them both. Who's going to love it more? Obviously the guy who I canceled 500, not 50. And so Simon, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty quick. He says, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman. So now he's wanting Simon to see this woman. I ask you that question because I want you to understand what she's doing. And he, and he says, do you see this woman? Because I know what you're thinking. And you don't understand what's going on in her heart. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Um, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She's doing all the things that a servant of someone would do that did not happen to Jesus. And she's doing this out of profound love look at what he says here therefore here it is i tell you her sins which are many because we all know what kind of woman she was we all know what she did her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and so the point is that he's saying to simon is um simon you think she's 500, and you think yourself is 50, but no one exists at 50. Everyone is 500. Everyone is, back over to our story, 6 billion. There's no such thing as a little bit of sin. And if you think that, all you're ever going to do is love little. Instead, all of us have incalculable, crushing debt, sin debt. And when it's forgiven, and we finally understand it, our reaction is like this woman. We love much We can't get over the fact that that sin that we've done against a holy God was simply forgiven and canceled because Jesus took our place. We can't get over it. And so back over to the story. Um, What I wanted you to see here from that second one is that God canceled debt for you as a Christian that was greater than you ever could repay. You never could repay it. So when we understand that, there's supposed to be a response from us. So let's look at here. And um, verse 25, and since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold. So the, the servant said, I can't repay $6 billion. It's, it's just impossible. And so the master said, since you cannot repay it, then um, I'm going to order you to be sold, your wife to be sold, your children that you sold, everything that you, that you have. I'm going to order all those things to be sold. And when all those things are sold, then I'm going to take that and that's going to be payment to me. Now, we don't need to miss this. After all those things are sold, that still doesn't pay the debt. It, it doesn't even scratch the surface. Like it's, why did I do that? So it doesn't do anything. That was weird. It doesn't do anything. Um, we don't need to make the mistake to think that if we could just do a little bit of stuff, then it cancels the debt. This is just a story. There's, there's nothing that you can do that will cancel the debt, the sin debt that you have before a holy God. And so we see there's no question whatsoever that this man must be in a he must be in a panic desperate situation i mean just imagine you yourself you owe money to someone and they say you can't repay it 
You can't pay, repay it right now. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you, your children, your wife, and all your stuff. I'm going to sell you all over the place and take that money back and just recoup what I can. Imagine if that's you. You don't know if your children are going to be with you. You don't know if your wife is going to be with you. You don't know if you're, you love your stuff. It's all gone. It's all gone. Oh, my God. I'm in a desperate, horrible, terrible situation. Now, if we were just to relate that spiritually, if we finally come face to face, the realization with God, I am in a messed up place here. I've got nowhere else I can turn. I can't. I just realized I can't earn right relationship with God. There's nothing I can do. This is one of the worst places to be, but I think one of the best places we can be. I think all of us should long for this place where we're finally face-to-face before God. We realize that there's no way we're ever going to earn by doing things right in favor with God. All we can do is what this man does is just plead with mercy. I plead for mercy from you because all I have is Christ. I have nothing else. He is my only hope. I've tried everything. Nothing ever will ever repay this debt. All I have is Christ. And we're asking ourselves then, if this is the perfect place to be, what's going to be the reaction of the master? Please show me mercy. No, I want to sell you. Is that the reaction? The reason why I say this is the best place to be, because we're not talking about being face-to-face with someone else. We're talking about this man going before God, asking for mercy. If there's ever someone that we know is going to abound in mercy, it's God. That's why this is the best place. When we go to him with real contrition of heart and say, I've got nowhere. I've got nothing. All I have is Jesus. He's my only hope. Please. He is not going to be perhaps like you or I and say, no, I want my stuff. He's going to, verse 27, abound, abound. Look what it says in 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He released him. That's what, that's what God is going to do. Whenever we forgive. Now let's, let's jump back over to 26 because I don't want to skip over this. This is going to be important. 26 is going to be important as we compare it to 29. Here's the difference between 26 and 29. 26 is whenever the servant comes to the master and he says, I need forgiveness. 29 is whenever the fellow servant, that this, this guy, this servant, no one uses names, so it gets really confusing. Here's servant B, if you will, and servant A who owed ser- the master. He, this servant B owes him money. And he comes and says in 29, almost the exact same words. 26 and 29 are almost mirror images of words. There's one little little difference, though. Let me show it to you really fast. Um, In 26, it says, so the servant fell on his knees. This This is what the servant said to the master. He said, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. 29 says, so the servant fell down and pleaded with him. The difference is, in the Greek, they both use this word lego, which is speak. So we have, he fell on his knees and spoke to him. It says imploring because it's taken that word before it and it's importing a lot of meaning. And in 29, it says, so the servant, uh, parakaleo, came alongside him in lego and spoke. So we have, in here, he fell on his knees. And basically, this, this fell on his knees imploring, all that is taken from this Greek word proskaneo, which is worship. And so... The, the meaning right here in verse 26, a, a good literal translation of verse 26, it says, so the servant fell down worshiping, saying. That's, that's the literal meaning. And I looked all through translations, and 
None of them used that except for, the only translation I found was the KJV. Not even the NKJV. The KJV was the only one that used that language. So if you're a KJV only, you've got finally one verse that can say, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so anyway, um, so <laughs> I like to pick with the KJVs. There. So anyway, 26, it says, so the servant fell on his knees, literally fell down worshiping, saying, and this is what he said to him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. This is what he says to the master. Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. There's a couple of things we need to look at that. Um, first is, have patience with me. There is a deep fear here that the guy has, rightly. A deep fear. He knows that if I'm not forgiven, I'm in big trouble. So there's this pleading for patience is, is rightly there. And he says, I will repay you everything. Um, don't try to write checks to people that you can't cash. I will repay you everything. This is not possible. Spurgeon, as he, sa- as he says, he's com- Spurgeon's commenting on this, he says, the promise that he made was not worth the breath with which it was spoke. It's, it's impossible for this man to actually repay this debt. Um, but we are just like this man. We think if, you're, if you are trying to earn a right relationship with God, we're going to be just like this man. We're going to say, all I need is just a little bit of time, just give me a little bit of patience, and I promise God, I will finally make this relationship right. The truth is that you don't need just a little bit more time, and you don't need just a little bit more patience from God, and all you can do is make it right. Wrong. Impossible. What you need is not more time and patience, but instead, you need the forgiveness of God to come down upon you. You need to not ask for more time and patience. Instead, say, I've got nothing. I have nothing. All I can do is say, forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. But we all fall back into, let me try to earn right relationship with God. So you can't earn right relationship with God. Instead, if we can remember whenever, you know, two years ago, whenever we were in the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this poor in spirit literally means, blessed are the poor in spirit or, spirit, or those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing. I have nothing except for Jesus. He's my only hope. And so this right here in uh, verse 26 when he says, be patient with me, I will repay you everything, is still, he's not getting it all. But what's going to be the response of this master? We've already said, what's going to be the response? Whenever this man says, have patience with me, I'll pray you everything, he's, he's making a plea based on the character of the master. What's the character of the master? No way I want my money. Look at this, 27. And out of pity for him, mercy, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt forgave six billion dollars forgave incalculable overwhelming crushing debt just like that now this is a parable and so it doesn't just happen that easy in real life in regard to our sin God just doesn't say, poof, your sin's forgiven. Something had to happen. Because he's God, he still has to punish you and I for our willful disobedience to him. He still has to punish it. And so, instead of putting it on us, 
He sent forward his son who lived a perfect life and he takes all of his wrath that was rightly ours and put it all on his son. So it's not in the parable. This is just a parable. Put it all on his son. And so if we come and we say, Lord, I want forgiveness. I trust. I have faith that all the wrath that was due me was put on Jesus. Forgive me for my sin and that perfect life that he lived. Would you now grant that to me? Make me a new creation, as it says. Now we, the great exchange happens. All of the wrath of God is put on Jesus for us. All of his righteousness is given to us. And that's whenever this happens. When he can say, incalculable, crushing, overwhelming debt. Canceled. I've already nailed it on a cross. That's what Colossians 2 says. I've already nailed it to a cross. And I can forgive it because I've already put it all, all the punishment that you deserve on Christ. And so that's, that's what's going on here. The master can forgive the debt because he's already put all the punishment on Jesus. If we, by faith, say, Lord, I trust that it was all put on Christ for me. Forgive me for my sin. Now let me walk in a manner worthy of this good news, this gospel, this great message that Jesus died for me. Let me walk in a manner that reflects that I... I love you and I appreciate you and I want to live out a life of worship for you. So, what's going to be the response here of God, of the Master? God is going to completely forgive everything out of mercy. This is the third note on forgiveness. This is the third note. God forgives us completely out of his mercy. He forgives all of our sin completely out of mercy. Spurgeon, when he's looking at this, he says, the debtor received far more than he even dared to ask. He wanted forgiveness of sin. Not only do we in Christ get forgiveness of sin, but we also get counted to be righteous before God, and then we even get more so, even better, don't miss this, relationship with God. We get to know God, intimate communion, with the centerpiece of everything. We get to know him intimately. You and I get to be invited into, adopted into his family and be called sons and daughters. So it's not just mere sin forgiveness. It's also application of righteousness, Jesus' perfect righteousness, and then adopted into the family of God, and we now have perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father. This is far more than he even asked for far more than we even asked for as he says the debtor received far more than he dared to ask don't 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 be afraid to ask god for things he loves to lavish good gifts onto his children he'll give you far more than you could ever ask or imagine ephesians 3 now um there is a little bit of a glimpse of the gospel in this and that we can't do anything to cancel the sin that's uh that we've that we've committed we must plead for the master to forgive the sin against us so i want you to see this for a second um in verse 28 it says this but when the same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants someone that's just like him one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii a hundred days wages um a a monetary transfer is somewhere around twelve thousand dollars okay now, $12,000 is nothing to sneeze at. Somebody wants to donate me $12,000, I ain't going to turn it down, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, but we take $12,000 and we compare it to $6 billion. I mean, literally, there's just no comparison. 
There's just no comparison to $12,000 with $6 billion. Now, here's the thing, and we must do this. If you're, as a pastor, I must do this and take a side and say, all right, um, $12,000 is a lot. And we're talking about forgiveness of sin. We're talking about sin committed against us. We're going to see that in verse 33. One of the points of this is that since God has forgiven you, you should extend this forgiveness to others. And so when we're talking about $12,000, when I say, that's not really something to sneeze at, that's a good bit. It is. So pastorally, let's just kind of stop using metaphors and let's just get real here. People have sinned against you. They have sinned against you horrifically. This $12,000 is still a lot of money. The sin against you is still significant. In comparison to the sin that you've done against God, I know that it's, it's not comparable. However, I don't want to dismiss the fact that you've been sinned against by somebody. It hurts. It leaves deep scars. Right now, with me talking about it, you're wishing that I would just be quiet because you, you, you thought it was all gone. You, you, you don't want to extend forgiveness. You want to pretend like it didn't happen. But let me say something. I know it's real, and I'm not trying to discount it. But, here's the fourth point. The debt of sin against you is never equal to the debt of sin you have against God. I'm not trying to minimize the sin against you. Someone sinned against you. It is painful. It's terrible. When you think about it in our humanness, we think they did a horrible thing against me and a a, a defilement of sin against me that I have never defiled against God. How can you say that that is worse? And I'm just going to say, no one has ever sinned against you like you've sinned against Jesus. You've sinned against Jesus in far worse ways because Jesus is perfect and you're not. The sin that was done against you was done against a sinner to a sinner. The sin that we did against God was from a sinner to to perfection infinite perfection and so the debt of sin against you is never equal to the debt of sin you have against God and here's the thing if God is willing to forgive that sin against you and it's infinitely greater than any sin done against you you know by the power of the spirit that you have the ability to extend forgiveness to whatever has been done to you and as I say that I know it's extremely difficult And I know it can't happen in this 45 or so minute sermon. I know it takes years. It takes a long time. If it happened to you for a a number of years, I I can't pretend to imagine that it doesn't take numbers of years to even work through and, and, and get counseling and forgiveness and work through it. But the key that we must remember is that we know from this text that we can and have the ability to give forgiveness to others no matter what they've done to us. Now, I want you to see something here um, in verse 29, which we've already talked about. There's, there's the same language from 26 and 29, from what he said to the master and what, from what the servant said to the servant. 26, he fell on his knees imploring him, or he fell down worshiping, saying, have patience with me, I will repay you. 29, whenever the servant said the same thing to him, he says, so a servant fell down, he was called alongside him and said to him, have patience with me, I will pay you. As Spurgeon was reading this, he says, um, what, and what Jesus is wanting us to see is that this, this particular servant, it ought to have startled the servant tremendously that he heard his own words from this particular person that was talking to him. It should have startled him that the same prayer and request that he made to the master was being made to him now. But 
when that happened, it didn't startle him. He remained unmoved. He did not forgive. He did not extend forgiveness. But God has extended us forgiveness because of our sin. He has given us amazing compassion, and it didn't result in an unmoved, unforgiving person like this servant. Instead, he is the master. But the servant refused. You can see that in verse 30. He refused and went out and put the guy in prison. This was one of the customary things. If someone owed you, you can put him in what's called debtor's prison until they repaid you. And so he showed him no mercy. There was no proposals. There was no mercy. There was no budging. There was no compassion. He didn't listen to his story. He didn't do anything. All he did, he, he did nothing like what was done to him. He didn't budge. He didn't compa- have compassion. He threw him in debtor's prison. Debtor's prison um, is a pretty harsh penalty, I think. He didn't learn anything from the compassion that was shown to him. Now, verse 31, look what happens here. When his fellow servants, his fellow servants were the contemporaries of him. There were people that they were kind of in his same station of life. I, I have fellow servants in my life. You have fellow servants in your life. This is, this is what I mean. I don't think this is the particular point of the passage, but I think that it's very important for us to consider. Um, it says his fellow servants saw what had taken place and they were greatly distressed fellow servants saw who are the fellow servants in your life they're going to see your children your spouse your roommates there are the fellow servants those that are closest to you in your circle that are going to not not if but when you are a hypocrite when you are inconsistent they are going to see it and what's going to be your reaction when the fellow servants see it in your life What's going to be your reaction? Is it going to be a spirit of repentance and confession? You're right. Thank you for being a fellow servant, pointing that out in my life. I don't want to be this way. Instead, I want to be a forgiver. Or when the fellow servants say it, are you going to have hardness of heart and say, be quiet. I don't need to listen to that. How about whenever, you know, and throw back their sin. Whenever the fellow, I don't think it's the point of the passage, but I think it's something to consider. We all have fellow servants in our life that are, when we're hypocritical, hypocrites and and inconsistent are going to point out sin in our life what's going to be our response because we are going to sin against them we don't want to but we're going to and so it says in verse 31 they were greatly distressed and when they reported it to their master all that had taken place they didn't try to take matters in their own hands they went back to the master and said this is what's going on you need to know about it 32 the master summoned him and said to him you wicked servant i forgave all of that debt because you pleaded with me i forgave all of the debt because you pleaded with me and here we can see this is kind of getting to us for us the point of the parable um d.a carson says those in the kingdom serve a great king who has invariably forgiven far more than they can ever forgive one another he calls me says i forgave all the debt because you pleaded with me and then here we get to um the these are my last two points. Let me, let me stop and make one little thing about 33. I said the point of a parable is always the last verse, okay? And it is. Verse 35 is the point of the parable, and it's going to tell us how we, um, as Christians, should have this vertical relationship with God and what it's supposed to be like. If verse 35 is the point of the parable and is about the vertical relationship we have with God, verse 33 is almost the point of the parable, and it's about our relationship we horizontally have with other people. I think that's what verse 33 is all about. It says in verse 33, 
I for, in for, verse 32, I forgave all the set because you pleaded, all the, all the sin debt because you, for, you pleaded with me. Verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So here's the fifth note regarding forgiveness. It says, you must forgive others like you've been forgiven by God. No sin against you or I can ever be compared to the sin that you and I have done against Jesus. And so we must extend forgiveness just like God has extended forgiveness to us. It's going to be difficult for some of us. There's no question. For some of us, it comes easier. Disclaimer, I've never been sinned against in a really, 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 really terrible way. So I know that you can say, Fudd, you just don't understand. And I know that. But I, I do know what the Word's telling us here. Listen to how Spurgeon says it. Spurgeon's so good with words. This is what he says. May my heart be as ready to forgive sins as it is to beat. May my heart be as ready to forgive sins as it is to beat. My heart is ready to beat over and over and over. May, May I be willing to pardon transgressions and forgive sins against me as much as my heart is willing to beat. Let's just think about what the degree is in verse 33. And should you not have had mercy on the fellow servant as I had mercy on you? What is the degree of mercy God has shown you? It's massive. It's unending. It was, as we said, overwhelming, incalculable, crushing debt. And he canceled it completely. Now here's what's Here's where it gets crazy. Verse 34 can throw us in a loop if we don't remember it's a parable. And also, it it does highlight for us being a story the justness of God. While he is merciful, he's also just. For those that don't obey verse 33, for those that don't want to extend mercy on fellow servants as God has forgiven to us, these are the consequences that God says in verse 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should repay all the debt. This word jailers is literally torturers. And so there's a word picture for us of hell here. This is a, an un, and it says, um, until it should repay all the debt. Uh, that's never going to happen. If you've ever read Calvin, you, maybe you haven't, but Calvin, uh, 500 years ago, he was writing right there in the midst of the Reformation. So it was right as the Catholic Church was kind of plugging along and Luther and Calvin wanted to reform the Catholic Church and so that has the Reformation. And so there was lots of things in the Catholic Church they didn't like. And so as they wrote, they kind of always just wrote real angry towards the Catholic Church. Calvin, he would, instead of calling them the, the Catholics, he would call them the Papists. Pape. The papacy is just the office of the Pope and so he just called them the Papists. Y'all worship and just right here in this particular time, he just launches over into this like, and the Papists like to blah, 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 and just goes crazy for a little excursus. And it's, it's entertaining whenever Calvin gets on his little Papist rants. But the point he's making here is he says um, in verse 34, and it says, they'll be delivered over to the tortures until he should pay all the debt. And so the those who are Catholics say, oh, this is purgatory. So they're thrown over into purgatory, and there's a time where he can finally work it off, finally work it off, and once he pays all the debt, then he can come back. And so Calvin's like, and the papist, there ain't no such thing as purgatory. And just, he doesn't do it, you know, redneck like that, but he still, he, he does it where he says, basically, there's no such thing as purgatory. The point that Jesus is trying to make when he says, until he should be paid off, flash forward back over to the, to the, um, 
10,000 talents, $6 billion. It's never going to be repaid. Therefore, when he says he's delivered him over to the torturers, it means for eternity, forever and ever. Which means, verse 33, if we're not willing to extend forgiveness like God has given to us, consequences, verse 34, we will have torturers and extended stay forever in hell. So what he's trying to say is this. The consequences of not being a mercy giver to other people is that the mastery, master is now angry with us. And I think if, if we're not willing, this shows we're not in Christ. It's not like, I don't think we can lose salvation. It shows we're not in Christ, and therefore the mastery is angry with us. He is going to deliver us over to torturers, and it will be forever. Now, um, let me take a little brief thing here and say, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, you might be asking this. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, wait a second, this is supposed to be a loving God. I thought a loving God would not send someone to hell forever. That doesn't sound very loving to me. Loving God's, a loving God forgives someone. So let me, if you're not in Christ, it's perfectly legitimate that you would ask that question. Um, I'm going to answer it. And if you don't understand it, let me, let's talk later. But I want to ask the question because I know you might be thinking about it, and let's address it head on. D, I'm going to give you a D.A. Carson quote and then give you why I think he says this. D.A. Carson says, Jesus, as he's telling this story, sees no incongruity in the actions of a heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and also punishes so ruthlessly. And neither should we. He says, I don't see any big deal of a, of, a, of a God or a father who wants to also forgive so bountifully, but at the same time, for those who don't want to plead for mercy, also deal with them um, and punish them ruthlessly. And this is why. Th- this is why I think he says that. Um, because God is holy. And in order for him to remain God and be holy, any sin that's done against him must result with punishment that is equal to who he is. So let me give you an example. In our society, if someone commits, you know, uh, commits this certain crime, they get, you know, crime X, they get five years. They get crime Z, they get 10 years. Crime whatever, they get 20 years. And so a sin done against us, people that are finite, has a finite ending. Sometimes it actually goes for the rest of their life, but it still has a finite ending because it's a sin committed against a person who has a beginning and an end. We're finite. But a sin committed against an infinite being, no matter what it is, must also, the punishment must also be congruent with the person that's being sinned against. Therefore, if God is infinite, the punishment that he must give must be infinite, or he just simply is not God. If he just punishes us for a small amount of time, he is now not God. And so God, because he's infinite, must punish to the degree of which he is in order to remain God, be holy, and be just. And so that's the reason why God looks at someone who says, if you're not going to plead for Christ, the only just action that he can do and be holy and be just and be God is to give you over to hell forever. And you might still have questions. You might still say, well, that just still doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like a very loving God. Let me point you back to verse 27. This was not the first reaction of our God. This was the final judgment. 
of our God. Verse 27 is characteristic of our Lord. He abounds in mercy, and he will continue to abound in mercy, and he will continue to abound in compassion for you if you will turn and say, all I have is Jesus. But if we willingly continue to say, I don't want Jesus, no way, and we, our entire life is perpetually rebelling against Jesus, then the final, not the first, the final judgment is eternal condemnation. But verse 27 is a great characteristic of our loving God, where he is kind to us, extending forgiveness forever, if we repent. Now, um, I want to look at verse 20, uh, sorry, 35, and this will be our last point. So here we see, it sh- until it should be paid debt, and the verse 35, so also, and this is the point, so, or therefore, what's the point of this parable? So, also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you what I just talked about in verse 34, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, you'll receive those consequences. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? Forgive from my heart. What does that mean? Here's the sixth note on forgiveness. The fuel to forgive anyone of anything is the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done for us. The good news that Jesus came down and was God and died for us for our sins. And not only do we get forgiveness of sin, but we also get the righteousness of Christ given to us. And now we get to have a relationship with God. And because he's done all the things we didn't even dare to ask, or maybe we did, now that we are adopted into his family, that is such good news. That is such extraordinarily good news. That is the only motivation and the only fuel that will actually last that you are able to extend forgiveness to your fellow man. I said as we looked at that first point, it will die out eventually if it's not based on and fueled by and motivated by joy in Christ for his gospel. It will die. But if we're forgiven in Christ, then we have the only motivation that lasts, which is his gospel. So... I think, in conclusion, let's just ask this one question. Um, if, if you're struggling, perhaps this is what you're struggling with. I think every single one of us will say, yes, that's exactly what I want, Fudd. I want that kind of transformed heart that whenever I see and understand the gospel, whenever I finally get a hold of it, I am just, I'm throwing out forgiveness all over the place. I can't get over what Jesus has done for me because it's such a huge, enormous gospel. It's, it's huge, enormous forgiveness for me. I want to now extend that forgiveness to everybody i believe that i believe that's what i'm supposed to do but i got this problem i just can't do it like that seems insurmountable how do i how i believe that but i don't know how how am i supposed to do what this guy in the parable is being told to do and really do it because that's just that's hard for me I've been reading a book called Gospel Wakefulness by Jared Wilson. Um, He's a pastor up in New England. And the reason why I think his book is so applicable to what I'm talking about is this. Um, He has a very similar story to me, maybe you. He said he grew up in a Christian home. He got saved at a really young age. But he just, you know, was never a disciple, didn't understand a whole lot of stuff, and kind of plodded through life for a while as a Christian, but just infant, you know, not understanding most. But then there was this one point as he grew up in his life 
where all of a sudden, at some particular point in life, I think he said it was 28-ish or so, that there's this moment of gospel wakefulness. He was a Christian, and then he went through about 15, 20 years where all of a sudden, the understanding of the gospel, and sometimes this happens right at conversion, but for him it happened later. The understanding of the gospel, the vastness, the bigness, the hugeness, all the sin forgiven hit him at this one place, and he had this, what he calls, gospel wakefulness moment where he finally gets the gospel, and it was life-transforming for him. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about. How do I do that? I want that. Let me read you a couple quotes that he has from this book um, talking about gospel wakefulness. This is, he's talking about this guy named J. Gresham Macon. He was a theologian in the 1920s, combated liberal theology. But this is what J. Gresham Macon says about gospel wakefulness or this idea of, yes, I want that. How? He says, if you want to find an instance of true gratitude for the infinite grace of God. That, that, that's the key, right? I need to have true gratitude for the infinite grace of God shown to me. How do I do that? How do I extend forgiveness? How do I love my neighbor? How do I care that they don't eat? How do I fill in the blank? If you want to find an instance of true gratitude for the infinite grace of God, do not go to those who think God's love is something that costs nothing, but go rather to those who in agony of soul have faced the awful fact of the guilt of sin and then have come to know with a trembling wonder what is the miracle of all miracles that has been accomplished that the eternal son has died in their stead. Get around those people that understand what that means. They've agonized in soul and they finally have come to a realization Christ Jesus died in my stead. That changes everything. Now I am having what he calls true gratitude for the infinite grace that God's shown me. We can, we can narrow it down in one little sentence. Thomas Chalmers, in the same book, he says this. Um, Till sin is felt to be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Till sin is felt, I mean, at the, at the deepest of our core, to be bitter. We wrap our mind around just how wicked sin is that we do that. Christ will never be sweet. He goes on to tell the story that John Bunyan um, wrote. It's just amazing. Um, John Bunyan lived a few hundred years ago. He wrote this, um, and he was talking about what brought him to this particular place of, of John Bunyan didn't use this wording, Jerry Wilson, of gospel wakefulness, but he, he talks about this, this moment in time where he had something happen, where he, and he writes in a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. John Bunyan considered himself the Chief of Sinners. Um, he says, One day, I was passing into the field. This sentence fell upon my soul. Just going through ordinary life, passing by a field. He says, This sentence fell upon my soul. Piper says, sermons don't change people's lives. Sentences change people's lives. I, I love that. And he says, this sentence fell upon my soul and it changed my life. Bunyan wrote, thy righteousness is in heaven. That sentence fell upon my soul and it transformed my life. In other words, he realized my righteousness is in heaven and it transformed him. And this is what he writes. He says, And I thought, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, 
There, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God cannot say of me, he still wants or he's lacking my righteousness because it was just in front of him right now. I don't have to give righteousness. My righteousness is in heaven. So when God, he's never going to look and say, where's your righteousness, Fud? I'm going to say, my righteousness is in heaven. He's right beside you. His name is Jesus. He thought of this and it just transformed his soul. And this is what he says. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better. It wasn't my good days where I acted for Jesus that made my righteousness better. And he says, no more yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. It was not my bad days that made me even more outside the will of God. Instead, my righteousness is in heaven. He says, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. That's good news right there. And so now we're starting to understand, how is it, Fudd? How is it that I'm supposed to have this abounding heart of forgiveness when we start getting the picture, the understanding, the infinite gratitude of the grace of God that our righteousness is Christ Jesus himself right now, seated at the throne of of God, interceding for us right now on behalf of us to the Father, saying, I'm interceding for them. That one, that one, that one. They're with me. All my righteousness has been given to them. I've forgiven their sin. They are pleading the blood of Christ right now. That's what's going on. And so we start understanding what's going on. He says, my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what he says. I love this imagery, this metaphor he uses. Now did my chains fall off my legs. I wasn't a slave anymore to unforgiveness. I wasn't tied down to those things. Now did my chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations fled away so that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. He went out rejoicing because he had this moment where he realized my righteousness is in heaven so I can extend forgiveness to other people. I can now live a life of joy. So when we start having awareness that this forgiveness has been given to us, this remarkable forgiveness has been extended to us in Christ and our righteousness is in God. Good days, bad days, don't change anything. You are completely justified, completely declared perfect right now before your heavenly Father. This frees us up now to extend the forgiveness to other people that God is calling us to forgive. It frees us up to love other people that we don't see as lovely. It frees us up to live as Christ has called us to live because our righteousness is in heaven and it's Jesus Christ himself. We're going to transition into a time of reflection and prayer and worship. And so, perhaps some of you have had some, some old wounds opened, perhaps. I just want to say, during this time of worship, if you want to sit and pray and just ask God to help you, you can do that. If you want to come and talk to me or talk with someone around you, uh, because there's, there's pieces of your heart that you know that you haven't forgiven of things that have been done to you. We don't want to minimize those things. We want to help you work through those things so that you can extend out the forgiveness that's been given to you in Christ. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to trust Him today. Stop trying to think that you can work your way to Jesus. The debt 
on you is incalculable. It will crush you. And you will never pay it back. Fall at the feet of Christ this morning. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. So there's, there's tons of response options right now. Stand, sing to Jesus, sit, pray, get counsel with me, get counsel with anybody. Talk to us after the, after the service. We want to be able to serve you well. But use this time. Here, I say this all the time. If God has just talked to you, God, we certainly can't just respond just like that. It takes a little time to think and pray and meditate and just be in the presence of him, being comforted by him, even if we're convicted, and then extended back worship to him that he's due. I'm going to pray, and then Ben will lead us in a time of worship. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Some of them have already had atrocities sinned against them and have forgiven. And Lord, what a great example that they have, in some part, understood the forgiveness of Christ and the gospel and extended it to others. But some here have not. They want to, God. They want to so desperately. It pains them. They want to, but it's just very painful. And I pray for them, Lord, that as they think and as they meditate and as they pray right now, that you would illuminate them of the gospel. Open their eyes to the vastness of the forgiveness they've received in Christ. Help them remember that their righteousness is in heaven and he's Jesus Christ himself. And he has forgiven them. And no sin we've ever sent that this ever happened to us is, is greater than the sins that we've done against Christ. And he has forgiven us. And we can forgive others. And also, Lord, I pray for those here that might not know you. I pray that this would be the morning that they cross over from death to life. They don't play games. They don't try to earn your favor. They realize that can't happen. The sin debt's too great. But a way has been made. The only way has been made through Christ. And they throw themselves on the mercy of the Master. And say, I trust you. I have faith in you that you died my death. All of the forgiveness that I should receive is made available now because Christ died on the cross. And they would be a believer in Christ. Saved forever. Rescued from the eternal torment that would wait them. Be with us now. Be in these moments of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.